Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hello, and welcome to the Awards Tour podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Coley, awards editor of Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm so excited to welcome you all to our inaugural episode. If you do continue listening with us, it's not just going to be to provide you with an inside scoop into all the happenings of award season, but also give you some historical context. Because if there's anything I've learned at my time working at Rotten Tomatoes or within the industry, it is that if you are a student of its history, you will always be able to predict its future. When thinking about our guest for our inaugural episode, you have to be struck by his studious commitment to not just music, but to the history of cinema and the various different worlds and lands he gets to play with. I'm, of course, speaking of our guest this week, Ludwig Göransson, the incredible, virtuosic Swedish composer who began his days in Stockholm at the Royal Academy as an up-and-coming proficient guitar player and has now graced the stages of the Grammys, Emmys, and Oscars, winning awards for his incredible, compelling, thoughtful, and cinematic compositions. A few weeks ago, we traveled to Gorenson's studio in Glendale, where he took us on a tour of not just his filmography, but of his overall passion for film, a passion which has made him a frequent collaborator of some of the biggest names in Hollywood, from his Oscar award-winning work on Black Panther to his first collaborations with Donald Glover, also known as Childish Gambino, on Community, to the project which brought him to theaters this year, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. A composer who has lent his talents to the stars of Star Wars, crafting the moving first season of The Mandalorian, he's also traveled to the continent of Africa and the Caribbean to bring the cultural composition of the Black diaspora to vivid light for Ryan Coogler's MCU epic, Black Panther. Filmmaking is always a collaborative process, but one of the common refrains we hear whenever we are speaking about the talented Swede is his dedication to just that. Never one to be alone with just his composition, he cherishes those moments and the names he's worked with are outstanding. Everyone from Adele to Rihanna to Academy Award-winning filmmakers like Kugler and Nolan all have sung the praises of Gorenson, not just as a thoughtful and talented collaborator, but as one of the most gifted musical minds of our generation. Another thing that struck me when I was speaking with Gorenson is the immense level of trust that many of his collaborators place upon him. Whether it be their debut film or debut album, some of the biggest moments of their career, he manages to breed a level of comfort and trust among those he works with almost instantly, which is why Chris Nolan on the Oppenheimer featurette shared that prior to his working with Gorenson on the script, he had very little notes on exactly what he wanted, save one. I had no preconceptions about the music for the film. Sometimes you have an idea for the soundscape of the world or the rhythm of it, and sometimes you don't. And in this case, all I had that I gave Ludwig was the idea of basing the score on the violin. 
In addition to that trustful collaboration, one of the most significant parts of the Oppenheimer filmmaking process was the pre-production that Christopher Nolan assists upon. In fact, the first phone call after finishing the script is, of course, with Nolan's VFX team, but the very next call, and this is a call as Mr. Nolan does not text, to speak to Gorenson. This is where Mr. Nolan first shared that he wanted to focus on the violin, knowing that Gorenson had his wife, Serena McKinney, an award-winning violinist, close at hand to assist. Those first early days of experimentation eventually morphed into the soundtrack and the internal dialogue of J. Robert Oppenheimer himself. The man, through his determination, intellect, and ingenuity, would create one of the most incredible and terrible inventions the world has ever seen. One of the oldest categories, the Best Score Oscar, was first handed out in 1935, due in part due to the innovation of vertical cut recording, which allowed scores to be more closely mirrored to their visual counterparts on screen. Holding a similar story beat to our subject this week, One Night of Love, the first winner of the Academy Award for Best Score, tells the story of a famed opera singer-musician who leaves her study in Milan to head to New York and try her luck, at which case she comes in contact with a famous vocal coach who vows to make her a star. Though not exactly the same, Gorenson has often said that his early work on Community with Donald Glover was a similar beat, a chance meeting that changed his life. It was truly a joy to speak with Gorenson, a figure who we expect to see not just gracing the stages of the Oscars this March, but more importantly, giving us a soundtrack from which we can divine purpose and humanity. So have a listen to our conversation with Ludwig and continue to tune in as we take you on a tour of this year's award season. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the interview portion of the Awards Tour podcast. I'm Jacqueline Coley, and I'm joined today by an Academy and Grammy-winning producer, writer, all-around, I think, musician, Mr. Ludwig Gorenson. Hello, sir. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to, nice to be here. <laughs> no, we're here to talk about uh, this right here. This mm-hmm. is the Oppenheimer I will go ahead and say, for Christopher Nolan to be on an executive produced track with you, it really says something of both about your producer ability and your scoring ability. Since we're here mostly to talk about that, I want to talk about that particular thing because it's not every director who chooses to be that intricately involved mm-hmm. in the score process from every aspect. Um, why do you think that is um, 
that is something that both you and Chris can do so well now in your second iteration, this idea of him being not just the director of the feature, but intricately involved in how you guys make the album. I think if you've seen any Chris Nolan movies, you know how important music is in his films. It's almost like its own character. Mm. And you can, you understand immediately what, what an ear he has for music and how much time you actually have to put in music to be able to put that in your films. And he's extremely engaged in the music music process from beginning to end. And also the way that he works with, with, with the composer, when we get started, it's way early. It's way before we start shooting the film. I'm one of the first piece, uh, persons to get to read the script. Hmm. And right after the script, I sit down with him, we have a conversation. Um, talk about what kind of music he's hearing or is thinking, and and then we start building the sound and the music world together. And it's a very, very, very close process. And uh, we sit down, we meet up in person once a week for about three months, and I write five five minutes of music every week, and we sit down, listen to it, talk about it, go through each composition very in a very detailed way talk about specific sounds, we talk about melodies, we talk about the, the structure of the composition, and then we pick and choose and, and, and create our own map of, 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 of music and sounds. Um, so when he starts shooting, he has about two or three hours of music ready to, to listen to. And, and I, think it, <clears throat> I think he also probably hears the music while he's shooting sometimes and... and Sometimes I also get a call from set, and he was like, yeah, I'm thinking about this cue we're working on. Like, would you mind changing the end to make it more upbeat or uh, in a more defleted way? Uh, so we constantly work on music up until we start actually working with the picture. I think that's so interesting. Do you ever, does he share it with the actors? Because there's a few scenes where I would feel the cues of the music are really the stage direction that the actor is working with. Is that something that also gets shared with them, or is it really just you and Chris in those early in those early moments? I think it's mostly just me and Chris. Um, but I'm 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 sh I also know Emma Thomas is listening on the music, and I think Jennifer Lame, the editor, mm -hmm. uh, she hears the music early on too. When they're finished doing the film, Jennifer Lame and Chris starts kind of the movie uh, the movie together. And so they already had two or three hours of music to kind of start picking and choose from. Um, so when we have a first cut, all of the music in the first cut is our original score for the film. That's so crazy. The film has already had such an incredible run, both commercially and critically. You're waking up literally this morning to new Grammy nominations for the film, along with Wakanda Forever. I will say, obviously, having won um, the top prize at the Grammy Album of the Year and everything in between that you guys have done, uh, what is it like waking up to new Grammy nominations? And also, in one category, competing against yourself. <laughs> um, it's, it's, I'm very fortunate to, to waking up to those kind of news um, and for people to think about the work you've done or listen to it or appreciate it is always uh, such a great thing to, to experience. And especially when you work on a project that reaches out to so many people. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not very often. So when, when that happens in your career, you really have to, you know, it, it, it really affects you in a different way because 
you, you start to get phone calls from people you haven't seen in a while or friends from, you know, I have friends back in Sweden that like, calls me and like, oh, we saw this movie or heard, heard this music. And, and it's, it's, um, it's a very interesting um, but beautiful experience. I really do love that. Um, I will say for Oppenheimer in particular, the nominations, it is coming from like, I think a very interesting moment with the film in the sense that Wakanda Forever was your last project and it's still in the same category as this, but you're really just sort of starting this journey, really talking about the score of Oppenheimer and everything that you've done. But before we sort of dive into it, I really want to talk about the collaborators that you've worked with up until this point. Because one of the things I think is so interesting is... Grammy award-winning compositions, these billion-dollar franchise movies. But I really wonder, when you were playing in the Fabulous Five mm-hmm. quartet, mm-hmm. was this the goal? Was this always the the focus? Was it, was it like that way back then? Or was this a deviation from your original musical aspirations? Because that jazz... That jazz five sum is very different <laughs> than, than any of these things. <laughs> the, the Fabulous Five quintet. Quintet, sorry, that was quintet. Uh, It was a very, very special time in my life. Uh, That was, I had, I started the Royal College College of Music in Stockholm. And it was the first time I experienced myself not being the best in my class at my instrument or my abilities of music. And so it was a kind of wide eye opener for me. Mm. Uh, it It was a very difficult time because I was always used to kind of being the yeah, the best on guitar and the best, and this was in this occasion. I was I was uh, amongst the the people that 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 were a little that needed to. Um, I felt like I had a lot to prove, and so my first two years of, co- of college, I spent a lot of time just by myself and practicing, and like I had to get better on my instrument instrument and getting better in improvising because my major was also jazz performance, and then my last year. Of college, I started this group called Fabulous Five, um, and we made a record. I made a record, uh, had some great musicians with me, and we won competitions. and And people were like, "Oh, I didn't know you did this. I didn't know." So I was like, "It was a very cool, nice end of my college experience." <laughs> nice end. I just that was like important for me to 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 prove to myself that I wanted to achieve. This in education in in Sweden at the time one of the highest most impressive things you can do was to go to this program and play jazz and and I wanted to get as as good as I could on my instrument as possible. Well, I would say um, you've definitely done pretty well. One of the things you also see is um, even though you've done all these records, seeing you perform them is a rare thing. Obviously, when you go on tour with some of your artists, you're out there with them. But mostly what I was able to look at is like you on like Jimmy Kimmel or you on The Tonight Show. Is that something? Because now with all of the music scores that you've done, all of the television, and as well as the like hit records, you could definitely do what like Hans Zimmer is doing right now. And I do think it's a different time in music when I was listening to like James Horner and and um, Goldsmith and obviously uh, John Williams. Obviously, you could think about a concert with them, but those were just so few and far between. And now these guys are going on tour. But I also figure right around the time you could go on tour, you're too busy to do it. And you also have young children. Is that is that part of it? Because I have to feel the guy that toured with the Fabulous Five. Like you want to get back to that at some point, maybe. I think so. I mean, I w- one of my favorite things was to play for, is to play for live live audience. And I remember when I moved, when I did the move 2007 to 
LA and to America. I'd never been to the States before. Uh, and I moved to start my career and my studies as in film scoring. And I thought that I had to put everything else aside, my my live shows, my, you know, trying to play in a band, my producing. And I just put all that aside and just focus on a singular thing, which was film scoring. Um, and so I realized pretty early on, though, that, you know, I met Childish Gambino, I met Donald Glover through my first TV show, Community, and he wanted to... To, uh, he wanted me to help out produce some of the music and we wrote music together and then I put the band together for the live shows and we started touring and and I realized that maybe my strong card was that I actually could do all these things together that I wanted to do and I mean obviously I saw how Donald did it he was a, a writer he was an actor he was a musician and so I was like why I mean if, if he does that I can be a composer a producer a, a musician play live and 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 also one of my childhood dreams from always playing guitar as a, as a kid was also obviously to play for big large audiences and big festivals and all the, all over the world and and I got to do that with the with the Childish Gambino band and um that was some beautiful memories and um I was so happy that I was able to incorporate all these worlds together well, I'm going to be waiting out for a set at Coachella with Ludwig Göransson, and then you can bring everybody out. You can bring out Rihanna. You can bring out Adele. It'll be fabulous. It'll be, it'll be the greatest day. And I think looking at the folks that you've worked with and the fact that there are frequent collaborators, I guess it wouldn't appeal to you really to feel more of like a hired gun. Like you prefer in every aspect of creation for it to be collaborative because that's not always the case in scoring. I mean, sometimes the director and the person that's doing the composition barely talk mm-hmm. after um after the initial couple meetings and they maybe work independently and just check in with each other here and there. I, I guess that would not that would be a pretty unappealing aspect of making films if, if that was the case with a director. I like it I think that'd be an automatic no for you. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I mean I'm already spending so much time by myself writing the music <laughs> and sitting in my studio and and you need to feel something that you need to feel like you're getting something back. That's always important to me feel like I'm growing as a person, I feel like I'm growing as a composer, I feel like I'm learning something from the people I'm working with. And in this case, working with, with, with like you said, with Donald and Ryan and Chris, I always feels like they give me so much. And that's why I'm, I feel extremely lucky to be, to be working with, with true artists. Let's talk about working with those true artists. For folks that haven't seen Oppenheimer, which I really hope at this point they have on the largest screen possible. One thing, as I was getting ready for this, I went back and, and watched the film, and I'm actually looking at um, what you guys have here um, in the in the album, as well as what was written in the script. And one scene in particular, when I watched it this time, I, I got so um, intrigued by the fact that it is the idea of when you watch a Chris Nolan film, you have to watch it twice. And it's the opening scene when Strauss is meeting Oppenheimer. And it, it's a very innocuous scene when we first see it because it's just them and they're greeting and it's like, hi, come welcome. And everything in the dialogue is this is a happy meeting between mm-hmm. these men who are colleagues. Maybe Oppenheimer's a little cold, but this is just a very matter of fact. Yeah. The scoring underneath that, as I went back and listened to it, is so mischievous and 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 depressed and like it is just it is like if you were inviting over an in-law that you hated the music (laughs) is in that moment and I feel it is speaking to the fact that we know by the time we get to the film that Strauss is not like Oppenheimer in that scene we don't know it at the time but the music is telling us that 
because maybe Oppenheimer, like break that whole thing down because I had a whole story that I wrote about both Oppenheimer thinking that Strauss was evil and the music is telling us that he knows he's evil and and then Strauss being depressed about it. And I felt like that was all there in the score. So I hope I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) I think for that moment when you see Strauss for the first time, it's, it's not you don't see Strauss for the first time, but Strauss is meeting Oppenheimer for the first time. I think that's part, I think that's the sweetest music in the film, actually. Really? Yeah. Really? Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's also there there's all also hints of something of a mystery there that there's they give a little taste uh-huh. that there's there's a mystery involved in this, which is portrayed by the harp, and the harp is playing um, Strauss theme. But the chords and the soft strings under it is kind of making it feel a little lush and like, don't worry about this. We're, you know, we're, this is about, this is a good friendship. But there's always something kind of that makes you lean in and sitting on the edge of your seat. Oh, see, that's what I was just about to say. I, I, when I was watching it, the one thing I took from it is this is not what it seems. There's a little bit of undercord underneath that. Uh, I would say that pairs also very nicely with the scene where that officially becomes real, which is a lowly salesman. Let that mm-hmm. that scoring underneath that scene because in the first time you read that. Um, Oppenheimer says to Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Strauss, um, you were just a lonely salesman. And he's just like, no, just a salesman. And that sort of like bite back. Talk about that one. Because again, going back and looking at the film, those first 15 minutes hit so much incredibly harder because of the scoring choices underneath these seemingly innocuous scenes. Absolutely. And I think that's with Chris's films, how he ties the whole journey together. Yeah. It's, 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 it, the whole end ties in, in with the beginning. And the details in the filmmaking, and how you can, and how we also put the details of that in the score as well. We're hinting on things that you hear on later. And the more you watch the film, and the more you listen to the music, the more you can, the more you understand. And that's so interesting. How do you keep that sort of straight? Because it's like what you say: you bring in certain folks' themes as illusions. Is that something that you're taking the song and you're saying, okay? We specifically want to make sure these characters have hero moments within this moment, or is it something that is a little bit more felt through as to when you bring in the various themes? Because when Oppenheimer's theme comes in in certain moments, also when the theme attached to Florence's character comes in when she's not even on screen and and stuff like that. Um, Is that mapped out sort of in the script where Chris says, hey, I would like this, this sort of emotion or this color to come in more, or is it just sort of felt through? No, I would say that Chris maps, Chris does an incredible job with mapping out the music on the first director's cut. Really? Yeah, because we've already taught, we've, we've written, we have about three hours of music, and we have a, 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 an idea of where the music will go and for who. You know, we have Strauss, we had Strauss theme, we had Oppenheimer's theme, and then when, we, when Chris and Jennifer Lame goes and starts making the first cut, they're really good. Chris and Jen does really good work on mapping the themes out for different characters and putting the music at the right places. And then when I see it, you know, it's it's that's it's an incredible experience for me. It's obviously, you get to see a, a, a Chris Olin movie, movie for the first time, but also hear the music that you've been working on together for a long time and see it, how it comes to life. Mm-hmm. And but that's also after that moment. That's when my job really starts because a lot of the music stays in those places, but then there's a lot of themes that we still need. Like we didn't have Kitty's theme. 
we didn't have a theme for like we were we didn't have a theme for that happy Strauss moment. Like we had the Strauss theme, but we didn't have we didn't know how to make it in a sweet kind of mystery vibe in the beginning. So after I see the first cut, that's when I bring all that music with me back to the studio and we start really sketching out and mapping out what's missing, where are we gonna put it, how are we gonna carve out the themes and carve out the score and makes it flow into each other and and it's really it's a lot of it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And and we work Monday through Thursday and then on Fridays we watch the movie. Wow. And we keep doing that every week for I think three or four months. When do you guys sit down to do the final master recording, which I know is one of your favorite parts, is when you finally get to, I don't know how many pieces were attached to this one. Was it, how many, how big was the, was the orchestra that you guys assembled for this one? I think it was a 46-piece string orchestra. Wow. And then we had some additional brass for another day, like a brass session, and then harp. Wow. So after you assemble all that, when at what point do you finally sit down? Is it with the, because everyone does their scoring sessions differently. Are you guys doing it directly to projection through screen? Or how do you set up your scoring sessions? Because I do feel it's sort of like um, with an actor, what they choose to do with their marks and everything else. For Oppenheimer, we had, we, I started recording very early. And the first note that Chris had on the music, the first idea he had on the score was to use the violin as portraying Oppenheimer's um, personality and, uh, and his emotional state. And he also knows that uh, Serena, my wife, is an incredible violinist. And so he knew that we could also probably get started on that very early. And we did. And I was I, that was a very lucky situation for me to be able to work with her. And she's a very accomplished violinist. And we were experimenting the first couple of weeks with just like microtonality, uh, doing small little glissandos up and down in, mm-hmm. in different clusters. Because that was something that was interesting to, to Chris and I, uh, how we can use these old... Because a lot of times when you think about strings and violins, and especially in the way it's been used in cinema and especially in horror films, having these like string clusters and, and the, the shock moments of, the, of that abrasive sound. But how can we take that approach turn it around and instead of maybe use a string cluster and have it be very abrasive and, and, and scary sounding, but then within a split second, change the glissandos to something beautiful, melodic and romantic and with, with a beautiful uh, slow vibrato and how you, can, how you can go in between those emotions in a really interesting and different way. Yeah. Like, for example, when you see Oppenheimer sitting in, in the courtroom and he's telling basically his wife sitting behind him and he's telling the story about how he cheated on her with with um, Kitty and yeah, Gene Tatlock. Yeah. He's, tell, he's basically telling the story. His wife is sitting behind him and he's telling the story how he cheated on her with, with Gene Tatlock. And the music that's coming in there is like these like, yeah, almost like a horror movie, these glissandos. And like you're, like, you're like, what's happening? And then you see him naked and then... But then the way this Glissanos ends is like in a beautiful chord with a lush vibrato. And so you say it's going in between those painful moments in, in a neurotic way. Yeah, that is the scene that was definitely talked about there. Again, it's, um, it's the careful instruments because that's almost a thriller-like moment. The music makes mm-hmm. it as much more tense in that moment because he is matter of fact in the way that he's saying it, but we know this is a very heart-wrenching thing. It's very similar to 
the act that the film I say is a thriller to people who don't believe me. I'm like, yes, I understand that it's a long movie, but trust me when I say this, you feel the tension in so many aspects of it. And another scene I know where you felt that is also a scene where you told me it was very difficult for you guys to find the scoring behind it. And that is the moment in the gymnasium um, after the drop when Oppenheimer is essentially being celebrated and he's feeling this out-of-body experience with celebration for what he's created. And and it's the beginning of him questioning his creation, I yeah. think. That scene, I was surprised for you to say that it took so long because it is so powerful, but also it feels so organic. So mm-hmm. talk to me how you guys eventually found that and why it was so difficult to find that scene and what would work with it. It's interesting because I've been thinking about that for, for a while now. and um, And as I'm taking a little step back from, I mean, this was, we finished a movie about eight or nine months ago. And I, I'm kind of now was like realizing the depths that I had to go through to find the music for the character and how that affected me at the time that I didn't realize. Um, because the music is embodying him and the music has to come from his eyes, from his mind. And you, have, you the audience is sitting, feeling everything through him. Mm. And that the only way to get that make that happen was to for me to do the same thing obviously and those are a lot of things that I, I themes that I felt like I really connected with him on like the feeling of, of, of how he feels kind of loneliness and, and no one's understanding him and, and this kind of especially in the beginning of the movie where he's where his first theme starts where Oppenheimer gets introduced it's 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 when he's like when he's a student and he's and the theme is is to me about loneliness and and you hear this one violin playing this the melody and accompanied by just a, um, this kind of synth bass. But then the journey that that eventually takes and how he goes into these that scene, for example, where he's, his whole world is just shuddering. Mm-hmm. And that it, it it I remember reading the script and 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 reading about that and how that that had a, such a powerful effect on me. Because I could not even imagine how that would feel like, and imagine that he would go through the something like that. And I think why it took the longest is just because it was—it's such a complicated feeling that I've never—that's so far away from from anything that I've ever experienced. And it took me a while before, a long time before I could actually understand and kind of really go through what. I'm not saying that was close to what he was doing, but 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 go through that that difficult time um and and it was it was also not fun to feel like to yeah. go through those feelings either so that's why it took the longest we, we didn't finish that cue that piece of music until one of the very last days of, of the dub stage wow and i remember when we did it because chris was like you nailed it I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it was like you felt like you ran a marathon it's like oh we're done we're done we don't have to keep working on it no but it was it was it was i was connecting that what I think what was solved the puzzle was that I was connecting it to a piece that's earlier in the movie when you a music cue that's called Gravity Swallows Light and it's in a scene where he visits Los Alamos for the first time with Lawrence and his brother and you see these beautiful shots of the stars and like getting swallowed in black holes and that's one of the first times you hear these synthesizers that feel like they're just grabbing you down in a downward spiral to me that's that was my thought about that was that the synthesizers would channel the the, the impending doom, mm. and somehow it clicked to me like like let's bring that feeling and those emotions back into this the scene that we're talking about. I love listening to artists talk about their moments of inspiration, and I think 
it's always so interesting where it comes from. Sometimes it's a random moment at the grocery store. Sometimes it's this moment that you recreate from your life so you can get into the emotions of a different moment. Uh, I would say that there have probably been incredible ones throughout your career. Can you just give me a hint on maybe one of the strangest places you received inspiration in the sense that, like, I do not need to be thinking about this melody right now. I've got other things going on, but I got to go write it down because it's there. Or maybe something that you would have not thought inspired a piece of work in the way that it did, like a sound of a one of, one of the composition people I talked to said that it was a kid's squeaky toy, gave him the first melody that he could then, like, layer through to make the beat of the song so do you have anything like that i feel like it's so many things <laughs> like i feel like there's so many things like that um i i just i i feel like because i to me i get i, I get a lot of inspiration and being able to write music and I, i'm able to write music from creating sounds and creating my own sounds and taking taking familiar sounds and then manipulate them into something else or taking things from the environment or from a like in Cree with like boxing gym and taking those sounds and making that into music. And so so for me, this hearing sounds and creating sounds is a very big part of my process. And using that is, and to be able to create, write melodies or create music is very important. So, and I think for, for Oppenheimer, um, the way I wanted to start this score, because I also, when I start scoring any project or when I start writing songs or anything, I always wanted to feel like I'm doing something for the first time. So any any movie or TV show that I've been doing, I've, I'm always trying to do it in a different way to not feel like I'm repeating myself. Um, and but for Oppenheimer, what was what I wanted to start with was the emotional core, and not trying to hide with sounds or production because that's also easy to do. Like if you get if you have some really cool sounds or some technology or production ideas, like it's easy to kind of also sometimes hide behind that. But I, I knew as soon as I read the script that we need to get the emotional core right. We need to get the themes right. We need to get the the melody and the, the harmony and the, the, the heartstrings right. And I knew if we, if, we, if we did that, if we had a good seed with, with that information, it would be easy to put in the production and put in the synths and the electronics. That would, that would, that would be the easy part. Well, I would say mission accomplished. Um, before we get out of here, I want to start with where it began because I, I love this about Christopher Nolan is he is a he's a cinephile through and through, but more importantly, he is a student of everyone that he works with. Mm. Um, he is always careful to study anything that they do and say, hey, this is something that I saw that you did that really inspired me. And I love the story of the first thing that he saw with you that sort of brought you to his attention and eventually to your collaborations through Tenet. So I'd love for you to share that because I think it's it's such a great story that, first of all, where he saw it, the fact that he like calls up Ryan for the ticket, again, it's a great, it's a great tale. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that way, the way I know I knew about it first was because Ryan Kruger told me this and it was at the premiere for Creed, the first Creed film. And I think Ryan had invited Chris Nolan and, and Emma Thomas to the premiere and they showed up and loved the movie and Ryan got a little chat with him after the after the film and and one of the questions that Chris Nolan asked was who scored the film and Ryan was like yeah it's my my my, my friend Ludwig Warrenson and he told me Ryan told me about this a couple of days later and I was like oh that's pretty uh, that's pretty cool I, I, obviously I didn't think that 
anything was going to come out of it and other than the, the flattering question about who scored this film they must have liked the music um so but here we are now there you are, two movies later, and hopefully more. Thank you so much for this. I, you are a very busy man. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask what folks can look out for you next, because I, I'm sure you're in here writing something right now. <laughs> um, I think next will be my own music. I mean, I've been working on it for six years now, so hopefully I'll have some—I I do have some time now where I can think I can finish it, so— all right, as the musical theater kid in me, we ever going to catch you on Broadway? Like, I'm just, why'd you laugh? <laughs> uh, catch me on Broadway. I was just like the phrase. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, I think, I think you're getting closer to that EGOT status anyway. I just, I want to know if it, if the aspirations for you to write a, lo- like a lovely romantic uh, uh, musical is up there. Cause I would listen. I would. <laughs> you know, uh, you never know. I, I do, anytime like I go to see a musical, uh, most of the times I get very inspired because I, I love I love that uh, the stage and I love that scene. And whenever I go, I get, I get inspired, but but probably will take a little time before you see me there. All right, yeah. all right. I know Adele won't do it, so I'm never going <laughs> to ask her. All right, that's it for us. Um, I want to thank you so much, and I want to remind everyone that Oppenheimer is available for voting in all categories, and be sure to check out the album. It's awesome. Grammy-nominated. Thank you so much, Ludwig. Thank you. <laughs>